It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be back with God's people, worshiping the Lord together. Thank you for singing this morning. Do you know that that's just not something we do because we have to? It's a gift of God's grace. We actually are called to minister to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so you actually, your singing is a ministry to each other. It's not just preparation for the word. It's actually, it's actually theology, response to God. So what a gift. Thank you, musicians, for leading us to worship the Lord this morning. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and go to the book of Ephesians. I hope you have a copy of God's word, or if not, you can see one close by. Because we go to the word of God because it's in it. We have all that we need for life and godliness. And apart from this book, uh, we, we are hopeless. You know, there's some really objective questions in life. If I just, just random questions like, what is a hammer? There's, there's really a whole, not a whole lot of debate on what is a hammer. There's different sizes of hammers, but at the end of the day, a hammer is a heavy metal object connected to some sort of stick that you hit things with. Now, you could argue over the size of the hammer. You could argue over uh, the shape of the hammer. You could argue over whether it's a handheld hammer or an air-driven hammer, but it's still a hammer. There's not a whole lot of debate. We could argue, we could talk, uh, you know, another question, what is a, a broom? There's a lot of different sizes and shapes, but at the end of the day, a broom sweeps things. It might be a sweet sweeper broom on a truck, but it's still a broom. It might be a little broom that my three-year-old has to clean under the table that when he's done, you've actually got to go re-clean because you really didn't do a good job. It's, it's just really a, a pathetic excuse for a broom, but he's learning to be a helper, so we let him help with his broom. There's some, there's some objective things, and honestly, a lot of life is like that. There's just real objective answers. Well, this question should be objective, but it's not. What is the church? That is one of those questions that really is just entirely confusing in our generation. What is the church? Why does the church exist? And we could go on forever. Why does the church exist? And somebody might say the church exists to care for the poor and needy. Should the church care for the poor and needy? Absolutely. Is it why the church exists? Absolutely not. Somebody else might say, well, the church should be about social justice. That's why the church exists. Should the church care about social justice? Absolutely. Is it why it exists? Absolutely not. And we could go down this list and continue where there's a lot of reasons why the church exists. I have some unbelieving neighbors, and, and they believe the church exists because it's where people find friends. So you know what? You have a bigger friend circle because in a church, you have a big community. And then when you're in need, everybody jumps in and helps you. And so the church is really just a, a place to come, and when you need help, they're there to help you. And, you know, I've got my friends that we do this together, and you've got your friends, and you do that God thing together. And that's kind of why the church exists. And brothers and sisters, that is not why the church exists. So this morning, we're going to look at the church, God's people and God's plan. God's people and God's plan. Last Sunday was a sermon to my heart. I wanted you to know what God calls all pastors and elders to be and do. Well, this Sunday is to you, the church. It is to us as the body. What is God's design for the church? This could be a series that takes months, if not years, to go through. And I'm going to try to do it in 40 minutes, okay? So you might, you might say, well, Pastor Justin, you didn't cover it all. I know. 
um, I'm kind of disappointed I can't cover it all, okay? But we're just going to do a 30,000-foot flyover, okay? And you're going to see the mountains and the lakes, but you're not going to get real close because we just don't have time this morning to get there. Here's the definition we're going to work off of, and we're going to go through it after I read it carefully and slowly and hopefully, hopefully grab onto a few of these things. The church is a redeemed body of Christ followers who are devoted to three things. The church is a redeemed body of Christ followers who are devoted to three things. Living for the glory of God. Loving and serving one another another by grace. And going with the message of the cross everywhere they go. Those are three big categories that we're going to cover this morning. But first, we're going to actually word by word go through this statement. The church is a redeemed body of Christ followers who are devoted. So let's break that down together, just real simply. And we're going to stay mostly in the book of Ephesians because it's, the church is all over this book. The first thing we see is this word, the church. You may have heard the Greek word ekklesia. It's a really common Greek word, simply the called out ones, the gathering of a group of people. It wasn't exclusive to the church, but it was people called out to do something. So we have this idea of church. Well, what is it? We're called out. Called out by who? By God. We are called out by God. We are known before the foundation of the world in Hebrews chapter, in Ephesians chapter one, right? Predestined, excuse me, by God. He called us out. This isn't a random happening. This isn't just like, well, I happened to show up this morning. This isn't, I woke up one day and I wanted to seek after Jesus. It was, he called you out from before he made you. And he set you apart. And now you're a part of this thing called the church, the bride of Christ, the called out ones. So that's what the church means. We are called out, this assembly of saints. But it's important that we recognize we're, a, we're the called out ones who are redeemed. We're redeemed. Why we come together is because we are redeemed. Sadly, today, a lot of people in the church find greater unity in everything else but redemption. Think with me for a moment. And I'm not gonna, I don't wanna step on your toes, so I'm not trying to offend you this morning, but I think these are great, illustrious points. People come to church and they end up hanging out with people that are like them. So you might be into healthy eating. Praise God, take care of your body. But when you come to church, are you about Jesus or healthy eating? Right? Or you might say, well, we have chosen to, to school our children at home or we put them in a public school environment. Hey, praise God, that's between you and God. But does that become the fellowship you have in churches? And if you've been around churches very long, you know that those can be divisive issues in churches. Or it's, it could be down to Christian liberties. So it's somebody, well, we're the people that are free in Christ and you guys aren't because we do all these things and you don't. And so now we're divided over the things that we think we can and cannot do as followers of Jesus. And that list could go on and on with things that are so pathetic and so minuscule and so not eternal But when we gather together, we can be just like any other bunch of sinners. We don't think about Jesus, and we lift up all the things that we find important in life. It could be political issues. So I got people in this church, we're the same politically. We hate the president. We love the president. We can't stand this. We love this. And so then we can just kind of cloister together and think that we're right and they're wrong. Men and women, we're a body. We're a church that is redeemed. What does that mean? The word redemption is to be made free by a payment. Jesus paid for you. Jesus paid for you. That's the word redemption. Listen to Psalm 130 verse 7. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord, for, the, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. I wanted to read Psalm 130 because that's a thousand years before Paul wrote anything on redemption, and we see God has always been about redemption. He's always been about buying back his people because we're slaves to sin. We don't like that word slaves, and we don't like the idea that we're slaves to sin, but we are Well, we were, right? That's how we were born. You're born that way, whether you like that idea or not, and you have been redeemed, if you're in Jesus, by a payment made by our Savior on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7. If you have a Bible, you can look there. In him, Jesus, we have redemption. We have been bought with a price through what? What? His blood. His blood was the payment for your redemption. So just... Think with me for a moment, men and women. The God in Genesis 3 who said, because of your sin, you'll die. The God who said in Genesis 3, because of your sin, there will be death, is the God who died to redeem you. Like he's the one who said, I'm gonna gonna pronounce the curse of death knowing that I'm gonna die in your place because you are under the curse of death. What a beautiful thing. So he, he cursed us in our sin, so we're born slaves. And he set us free from the curse in his own death on the cross by the payment of his precious blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We hate to think about our trespasses. But don't you know from your own experience that the weight and the pile of your trespasses is massive? If you just want to be depressed, think about all the things in life you wish you could redo. I mean, what a great way to just like leave church totally depressed. Like, well, we just had a great sermon. We all now walk out losers. You know, how utterly fa- utter failures we are. The whole point here is that we are lost in our sins. We are slaves in our sins, but we have been redeemed. So we don't leave discouraged. We don't leave, oh, I'm such a loser. We leave, oh, I have a great savior. I have been redeemed. Thank you. I have been redeemed. Romans 3.24, we are justified. That's to me, that means to be declared righteous. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that think they're good people. You know, though, I've never heard anybody say that I'm a righteous person. Do you think about that? Ever. Ever. I have had a lot of conversations with a lot of saved and lost people, and everybody's kind of, well, I'm I'm good. I mean, I'm better than average. Nobody's ever said they're righteous, because we know we're not. To be justified is to be declared righteous apart from anything you've ever done. Jesus Jesus did that work. So Romans 3, he says, and you have been declared righteous by his grace as a gift. And the word grace and gift there are almost the exact same words. So translators don't know what to do with it. So they just say grace and gift. But it could just be you've you've been justified by his gift as a gift, by his grace as a grace, because it's all him, not you. Through, there's our word again, the redemption, the buying back that is in Christ. He paid the price. Why is redemption so necessary? Ephesians 2. Turn your Bible over one page if you need to. And look at how Ephesians 2, 1 begins. And you were dead. In the trespasses and sins. In which you once walked. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is not the message of self-esteem. That's not the power of positive thinking. That is a message that is just, really, Lord? That's who I am? Dead in my sins. Not only are you dead in your sins from birth, but your, your God is Satan. That's what it says. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. And, and I, this is really simple here. Among whom we all once lived. There's no special way to understand that. It's real clear. We're all included in that all, in whom we all once lived. Carrying out the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Oh, Lord, I've done so many things that I wish I could undo. So many things I wish I could erase from my memory. I followed my passions. I followed this evil desire. And then we're children of wrath. I mean, talk about a topic that is not popular today. Just talk about the wrath of God. I mean, oh no, we've created this heavenly teddy bear that when you're having a bad day, go squeeze him. And he squeezes you back. And then you can just walk away happy. The God of wrath who hates our sin. There's no such thing as God, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. He doesn't judge sin in hell. He judges the sinner in hell. He hates our sin, and therefore we will be judged under the wrath of God. And men and women, if this passage stopped there, we are of all people most pitiful. But look at verse 4. But God. This is a mind-blowing statement. He's painted this picture of just grim despair. And if he leaves it there, we should just literally be, be miserable because we are hopeless. And he just, just screams there, but God. If there's no but God, then we have no hope. But he says, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That's what it means to be redeemed. You have been bought back. You and I had no ability. You and I, you've studied slavery, whether it's contemporary or historical. A slave cannot free themselves. True? They can run away, but they're still not free. At some point, the master has to say you're free. So you may be here this morning thinking that you're trying to free yourself from the slave market of sin by your performance. You're trying to do, you're here at church because you're hoping God will love you more. And, and you can't free yourself. You are in bondage, and you're helpless. But praise be to God. But God, who is rich in mercy, sets us free. So the church is a redeemed body. We don't come together because we like one another. We don't come together because we have everything in common. We come together because we have been redeemed. And there, if there's anything that unifies EGBC, it'll be redemption. Because when we look around this room, from a societal standpoint, we should not get along. When I do small groups in my home, 
We have 20, 30 people in our house, and we'll be sitting there going, the only reason we like each other is Jesus. We have nothing in common. We don't have the same hobbies and interests, but man, we love Jesus together. And so therefore, redemption bonds us as children of God, not our social interests, not even that we come to this church, but we share Jesus, and we have been redeemed. So the church is a redeemed body. Let's look at the word body. This idea of body is that we're not a distant association of casual acquaintances, but an interdependent body where every part is vital. This isn't like, oh, well, we're kind of casually involved. We're, we, we kind of casually know each other. No, it is an interdependent body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. It's so fascinating that Paul uses the idea of body over and over in his writings. Because we get it. Don't we get it? So this week I went on a little hike. And uh, about 19 miles in, the, the, the toe next to my big toe, I'm not even sure what that one's called. <laughs> but that little toe that's about that long started to get a blister on it. And my entire body was aware of the blister. I mean, it was just a really small one. And I don't, that toe weighs what, a couple ounces? And, and it was letting me know, you're hurting me. Would you please stop walking? Like, just sit down um, because I'm in pain. We get it. Every part of the body matters. And here he says, We're, you're, you're a redeemed body. And so we need to embrace that as a church. There's no casual members of the body. We're here because in the providence of God, this is the local assembly he's placed you in, and you are vital to the health of this body. And if you're not vitally connected to the body, guess what? The body is suffering. And you're like, well, Pastor Justin, that's a little harsh. I mean, I'm, I don't really have any special gifts. I mean, I don't, I don't serve well. I don't know how I'd fit in here. Do you know that after a while, if you ignore the pain of an injury, it becomes just kind of callous? You've damaged the nerves. Well, some of us, that's kind of how we are in the church. We don't even know what the church has lost. The church doesn't know what they've lost because we've just been dead on the vine for who knows how long. And we are a body. And if your entire hand doesn't work, all the nerves are dead, and everything is just shriveled up, you still want your hand back because you see everybody else with two hands, and you know how you're limited well, men and women, if we are going to be a church that is, that is thriving as God would design us to thrive, it's not because we're a casual acquaintance group of people, but we are entirely interdependent on one another. That when one part of the body is out of order, we feel it. And we say, no, no, we don't want that here. We want there to be health in the body. And so 1 Corinthians 12 is so crucial. There is one body with many members. And I want you to be real clear. Some people like to say, well, 1 Corinthians 12 is about the universal church. That's garbage. 1 Corinthians 12 is about local assemblies. So we're a local assembly of saints. And God has given us everything here to function and thrive as a healthy church. And we'll talk about this later in future months and years. But don't use the excuse, well, I just don't know where I fit in. Just obey Jesus and start loving the body. Don't use the excuse, well, I've got to take a spiritual gifts test. And once I do that, I'll know how to better serve. 
No, no, just, just love one another, as we'll talk about in a minute. Serve one another. Like Pastor Doug said, like there's a need in the body. Well, I can feel it. I don't even like kids, but I can feel it. I don't, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to share the right wisdom, but I can pray with you. I don't know what to say when people are hurting, but I can write a card and say, I love you. We love and serve one another in the body. So we're not a distant group of casual acquaintances, but an inter- interdependent body. And I love this next statement. The church then is this redeemed body of Christ followers. That's what it means to be a Christian. Do you know that? You may have heard the story. The word Christian came out of the mockery of the first century because the followers of Jesus were so evidently followers of Jesus. And the idea of a Christian was, you're you're a little Jesus. You're a little Christ. Like the guy that we killed, you follow him. What an idiot. It was a term of shame and mockery. My, how the tables have turned. Christian radio, Christian t-shirts, Christian bookstores, Christian everything, everywhere. A nation that's Christian. And the word is so cheap today. But if you look at Jesus, it was actually pretty clear. It was followers of Jesus. That's what he called people to. He didn't call people to sign up and say you're a Christian. Listen to what he said in John 1, 43. Follow me. That wasn't just a special call to to the disciples, to the 12. That was his call to all humanity. Follow me. What's it mean to to be a Christian? A Jesus follower? Not just in his moral teaching, but in in his theology, I'm a sinner who needs a savior, and I'm going to repent for my sin and turn to Jesus and live for his glory. I'm a Jesus follower who's entirely Jesus dependent. This was his call to everyone. So what is a church? It's a gathering of redeemed people who are Jesus followers. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Jesus follower, then I don't know what you are. You can say, well, I'm even a church member. Well, that's okay. It doesn't save you. Are you a Jesus follower? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. I actually prefer even in my conversations outside the church to use these words. Because when I say I'm a Christian, people are like, oh yeah, yeah, me too. It means nothing. But when you say in a conversation with somebody who doesn't go to church or somebody you don't know, when you're talking about faith and you say, well, I'm a Jesus follower. It's like, what's that? Glad you asked. Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. So we are Jesus followers, and men and women, we are devoted. We're devoted to three essential things. This isn't a casual commitment. It's not something you occasionally dabble in, but it is something that is the absolute necessity of your life that you delight in. You delight in this thing called the church. Jesus died for this group. I read a great book one time called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung. You should read it if you have not. It's it's short, little. You'll be blessed by it. He said, though people today talk about loving Jesus and hating the church. Oh, I don't really do church. I mean, if I have to, I'll go. But it's just, I got God, me and him, we're good. I got my Bible. So Jesus, it's his bride. He loves his bride. How would you be as a husband if, you're, if somebody just keeps ripping on your wife and making fun of your wife and why they can't stand your wife? Um, you, would, you would stand up for your wife if you're, if you're a husband worth anything at all. So we love what Jesus loves. We love his bride. And you know what? Because of grace, we actually can love people that are just like us, sinners who are kind of annoying sometimes, right? We're not all that lovely. I mean, we try to be lovely here, but we're not all that lovely. If we're really honest, our families know we're not all that lovely, right? They're the ones who see us when we wake up 
and we're like, oh, oh, another day. They're the ones who see us when we come home from work and we're kind of grouchy. We're not all that lovely, but because of grace, we can gather together and man, this is a beautiful thing. And like 1 Corinthians 14, it's so beautiful. The unbeliever looks in and marvels at what we have here. That's what should happen. The world should look in and say, I don't know what's going on there, but it's amazing. And it's all by grace because of what Jesus has done. So there's our intro for the morning. The church is a redeemed body of Christ followers who are devoted to three things. Let's look at these three implications that should define all of our lives. Implication number one, the church is a gathering of Christ followers who live for the glory of God, who live for the glory of God. There's the common Christian cliche from 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do all things for the glory of God. So you can get t-shirts with glory of God written on it, right? You can, it's on Christian music. It's on Christian radio. It's kind of casually thrown out there and it really matters little. Well, the truth is that God is supremely glorious and therefore he is worthy of you and I living for that one thing that's worthy of all glory and all praise. The scriptures are replete with statements of the glory of God. I love the Old Testament for a lot of reasons, but one is that you see the glory of God on display. Don't you wish you were there at some of those moments when the glory of God showed up? I mean, today we sing songs about show me your glory. Oh my goodness, we have no idea what we're saying. When the glory of God showed up, people fell on their faces as dead. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he beheld the glory of God, literally pronounced the curse of death on himself. Woe is me, I should die because I've seen God, the glory of God on display. When the glory of God showed up for Elijah, it, it literally torched an entire altar and took the stones and the animal and everything with it. Poof, gone. The glory of God showed up. We go through time and time again of God's glory was not something small or minuscule. It was the display of his awesome character. There is nothing like our God. And so when we talk about living for the glory of God, we must understand that he is supremely glorious whether or not you give him glory. He's not glorious because we praise him. Some people say, well, God created us because he wanted worshipers. God didn't need worshipers. He was fine without us. It is our privilege to worship him. It is our delight to worship him because of who he is. So it's like when you walk up to a magnificent site of creation and you just stand there with this, wow, like going to the Grand Canyon. You ever go to the Grand Canyon? Who's been there? It's, it's really a kind of a boring drive to get there. And you're kind of wondering, like, where am I going? I'm hours from everything. And unlike a mountain range that kind of slowly comes to you, you're literally like, there's nothing here. And then you just walk along the sidewalk, and then you come up to this edge, and you're just, everybody stands there like, wow, what a hole. <laughs> I mean, it's just, nobody says anything, but just like, wow, wow. And that's, that's all you do, because the glory of the canyon, just you feel small, and you just go, wow, this is amazing. When we behold the glory of God, that's what we're saying. We're saying, wow, he's amazing. He is awesome. There is nothing else worth living for. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Listen to the words of Paul. 
Here he transitions from his theological documentation and his arguments beginning in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In, verse four, in chapter 4, he's going to change his tone. He's going to apply it practically to you and I. And he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, plead with you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Three simple things about living for the glory of God. First, living for the glory of God means walking worthy. Some of you in here have professional careers that demand licensing. Like, I met a few brothers here that are contractors. You have a license. And that license means that you know the the laws and the codes and how to do things and how to obey the rules so that when the job is done and the inspector comes in, he he puts a stamp on it and says, okay, you passed. You, You know what it takes to do the job. You walk worthy of that licensing. And when you stop walking worthy of the licensing, you lose your license because you no longer walked worthy. Or some of you might be CPAs or finance guys. You've gone through classes and testing and licensing. And now you do your job at the standard of your licensing. Or maybe you're in the medical field and you've gone to more years of school than any of us want to care to, to think about. And you've passed board exams and more board exams and you like every couple of years do more board exams to keep your licensing so that you don't lose that licensing. And then you perform at the level of that license and, and you're walking worthy of your calling. If you're a Jesus follower, if you've been saved by his grace, This isn't rocket science, folks. Walk worthy of your Savior so that people would see you and say, oh yeah, I can tell what you are. You walk worthy of the Savior. There's something uniquely different about you because you walk worthy. And sadly, there's a lot of people who claim the name of Christ and care nothing for walking worthy. And I would rather they not claim the name of Christ because then you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christ follower, and it's like, yeah, yeah big deal. Didn't change that guy. Didn't change that girl. So if we are going to live for the glory of God, it means that we walk worthy of the Savior. Well, what does that look like practically? Well, that's the second thing in this text. He says, walk worthy of your calling. And then he gives these definitions in verse 2. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. I think here we see that living for the glory of God means being like the Savior. Isn't that like Jesus? He's humble, he's gracious, he's gentle, he's patient, he's loving. He just says, hey, walk worthy of your calling, be like your savior. Show him through your life. So what does it mean to live for the glory of God? Be like Jesus. Fight to be like Jesus. You know, we imitate what we believe is worthy. Don't we? Like whatever you think is worthy, you imitate it. It's what shows up in your life. So, you're a baseball person, it's October, you're, tra- you're tracking the playoffs. Any Dodgers fans out there? All right, none of you, all right, I'm not either. Oh, there you go, back here, we got one, there we go. So you're following it. You may, <laughs> you guys can talk afterwards. Uh, so, so right, you're, you're following it. You've got, you've got gear, you've got the hat, you think they're worthy. And so then you can say, well, that guy is a, a Dodgers fan. And right now, everybody puts away their giant stuff because, well, let's just say it wasn't a great season. All right? So they're not that worthy right now. But whatever's worthy in your eyes, it shows up in your life. I think my family's worthy. So guess what? I'm in a conversation with a stranger. What's going to come up? 
my wife and children, because they're worthy to me. They're, they're attractive and wonderful in my eyes. So I'm going to put it out there. Um, we live for the glory of God. We want to be like our Savior because we believe he is worthy and wonderful. And actually, he is the only thing that is supremely worthy and supremely wonderful. He's not one among equals. He is far above all. So we don't have, well, here's what I do for my job, and then I have my family, and then I've got Jesus. He is the one that's over all of it. He's like the umbrella you live under. It's like, well, it's all about him. Everything falls underneath this. He's it. It's all Jesus. I live for the worthiness of the Savior and nothing else. So we, we live for the glory of God as we be like our Savior. It's interesting that the third thing, though, in living for the glory of God is we must be a congregation, a gathering of called out ones that dies to sin. Again, a topic that is so unpopular today. I mean, just try it sometime in a conversation. Ask somebody, so how, how often do you sin? <laughs> okay, that was a conversation killer. We just don't talk about it. We don't like to think about it. Even though it's kind of the thing that unifies all humanity, our common sinfulness, we don't like to talk about it. We like to ignore it because, frankly, we want everybody to think better of us than we actually are. I just share real quick the gospel levels that, like, hey, we're all sinners who need Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing? We don't have to live in denial of who we are. We can embrace who we actually are and say, well, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm just as needy and just as broken, and I have a Savior. His name is Jesus. So we die to sin because we hate the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. Do you believe what you sang this morning and how deep the Father's love for us? Do you believe that? It was my sin that held him there. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. It was your sin and my sin that killed Jesus. Our sin put him on the cross. Ephesians 4, just a few verses later in verses 20 and 23 says this, that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put off your old self would be another way Paul says in Colossians to die to sin. This isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps theology. This is a run to Jesus theology. This isn't a, oh, I've got to make myself a better person. This is God, your gospel saved me and your gospel transforms me. I need you. I'm going to continually die to sin by the power of your grace. And so as a church, this body of redeemed, we love what Jesus loves and we hate what Jesus hates and we live for all that's praiseworthy, all that is glorifying to God. We delight in it. So as a church, we love justice and we should. We love justice because God loves justice. We fight for justice because God fights for justice. We love righteousness because God loves righteousness. And we should feel like the psalmist, God, I, I have a gospel love for people that don't know you, but I hate their sin. I hate the sin around me in my culture. I hate it because God hates it and Jesus died for it. And it kills me that people live this way. I love righteousness. We love redemption. We love redemption in culture. We love redemption in communities. We love redemption of souls. We love redemption because God loves redemption. 
We love gospel-centered, grace-filled compassion because it's the nature of God, full of grace, full of love. We go and we love one another. We love the world. And then we, we hate sin because God hates it and Jesus died for it. So we live for all that is praiseworthy, all that is God-like, all that is part of his character. Men and women, the church is this redeemed body of Christ followers that lives for the glory of God. There is no other category. You can't come up with an option B. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus who does it like this. Sorry, doesn't exist. There's only one. We've tried to create a lot of different categories of Christians. And then in America, back in the 1940s and 50s, we came up with carnal Christian. That's garbage. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian in this book. There are Jesus followers and there are not. There are not people that are halfway in, like I've got my toe in the water. Well, that guy jumped all the way in, but I'm just kind of dipping my toe. No, no, no. You're, you're a Jesus follower who lives for his glory. Not a piece of it, not a part of you, but you live for the glory of God. That's what must define a healthy church. Secondly, we love and serve one another by grace. So we live for the glory of God, and we love and we serve one another by grace. Again, the cliche of American Christianity is pretty emotional, sentimental, positive, encouraging, K-love kind of Christianity. Sorry, uh, it's a great radio station. Christians are just kind of known as sentimentalists. Just think positive, God will take care of the rest. Let's just give each other a hug and cry it out together. And it all will work out in the end. The command is actually to love and serve one another. It's not an emotional feeling. It's not this ridiculously positive outlook we take on life. But it's a commitment to love and serve one another when you don't want to and you don't feel like it. It's not like, well, I just get along with this person. No, that's not it. It is a call to love and serve people. So let's break it down together. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. What does it mean to love and serve one another by grace? Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Interesting that it begins that statement in 15, rather speak the truth or speaking the truth in love. So loving one another means we speak truth to one another. That is the most loving thing you and I can do. In a world where we really are filled with speaking lies to each other, we are called to speak truth. God gave my wife and I an opportunity years ago to care for a person battling addiction. And we, we um, met, we had this woman live in our home for many months. We counseled her, discipled her, and, and God taught us a lot about loving people through this scenario. One of the things that was kind of heartbreaking was this particular lady, um, she had really destroyed her life through addiction. And some of you may have been there or know people who have or have loved ones who have done that or are doing that now. It's a very hard thing to watch. This woman was precious to us and, and we had to reteach her all the lies she had been taught in therapy. Lies like, you're a really good person. No, no, you're not. You're not a good person. I'm not a good person. The only good person is Jesus and you need him. But our society is good at that, isn't it? 
Let's just tell you what makes you happy. And, and frankly, men and women, we're kind of good at the same thing because the truth is hard. Well, so when you see somebody that's not walking with Jesus, instead of saying, yeah, man, you're right, your two-year-old's a mess, I think you're the problem. I think, I think you're angry as a parent. <gasps> right? Nobody, no, I, that's not my job. We speak truth and love to one another. We don't beat each other with it, but we love each other with it. So we see people in sin and we see brokenness. We see hurt and we, we love because we have been loved by God. What are some simple ways we love one another with truth? One of the ones that's precious to my heart is this. We praise evidences of grace. That's speaking truth. Hey, praise God. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing God at work in your life and I just want to encourage you with how sweet that is. This isn't always beating somebody when they're down. This is God's at work in you. That is sweet. Praise. Can we just pray together and praise God for how he's at work in you? I have watched God work in you, and I want to praise that. If you're married, you should be doing that in your marriage. Are you just nitpicking at each other? Stop that. Change. I don't like that. Look for those windows, even if they're small, to say, hey, praise God. I can see that God's changing you. Evidences of grace. That's what it means often to encourage one another. We're not looking for marathon moments. We're looking for baby step moments. Hey, God's at work in you. Praise him. Other ways we speak truth. We encourage likeness to Jesus. Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. Provoke one another to love and good works. So we encourage each other to likeness to Christ. So we speak truth. And that could mean, you know what? Men in this room, I'm going to start getting, getting involved in your lives. I'm going to be asking you to go to coffee and to meet, meet after work and to, to go for runs if you do that kind of stuff. And just, I want to be in your life. And I want you to be in my life. Why? Because I need people who will speak truth into my life. And I want to be the kind of brother in Christ who speaks truth into your life. And so, but in order to do that, we have to spend time together. We have to know one another. And then as we know one another, as we love one another, we speak truth. So we encourage likeness to Jesus. And when you see a non-likeness to Jesus, you don't ignore it. You don't say, well, it's not my place to judge. It actually is. You're called to, to go up to somebody in love, not, not off the cuff and hit them with a baseball bat, but in love to say, hey, I, I love you. And, and God's providentially put us in the same local body of believers. So it's my responsibility to share something with you from God's word that I think will help you be like Jesus. We speak the truth in love. Third thing of speaking the truth in love is we bear the burdens of the broken. Can we be honest for a moment that we're all broken? We don't like to, we don't like to admit that, do we? Especially our society, man. We, we're beautiful. We, we dress nice. We got nice looking houses. We have good looking cars sometimes. Man, we, try to, everything, we try to make everything pretty so that we can lie and act like we're not broken. We just embrace the fact that grace is messy because we're all broken. None of us have it all together. If you come and visit my home, which I'm, you're still all invited next week, signups are going up, okay? When you come visit my home, you're gonna, you're gonna see messy. You're gonna see children who don't get along. You might see a father who gets angry at his kids. You're gonna see sin and you're gonna need to say, hey, can I, can I love you in brokenness? 
Can I encourage you to walk with God? Because that's what we do together. We don't hide brokenness. We, we live in the reality that we don't have it all together, but praise God, Jesus does. And so we can run to him and we can do it together. So we bear the burdens of the broken. Brothers and sisters, acceptance without truth is not love, but total selfishness. We do not just accept one another without truth, but we bring truth to the table. Our social media culture is all about lying. You're beautiful. You're attractive. Post another selfie so you can say the same thing. We don't speak truth. We don't post the mess of life. We post the beautiful moments so everybody can think our lives have a certain look and appeal. We we accept without truth, we're actually rankly selfish. Not only that, love without sacrifice is not love, but self-service. 1 John 3, 8 talked about not loving in word and deed, but in your actions. You, you sacrifice. Oh, it's easy to come here and love one another at 10 o'clock to 10.30 or 11.30 if I finish on time on Sundays, <laughs> which I probably won't finish on time. That's not love. Loving one another is when I really don't want to care for you right now. I've had a long day. But God's calling me to love you. And so I'm going to love you. I really want to be in bed right now. I'm losing sleep because of you. But I love you. And so I'm going to pursue you in love. So we love one another. And we serve one another. Which demands effort. We love and we serve. Just real quickly, a healthy body functions, as I've already said, at 100%. Look at these words in in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. We speak the truth, we grow up in a maturity from whom the whole body is joined together. Every joint with which it is equipped. The whole body's working. We serve one another. So you have ways. God has gifted you by his grace to serve one another. That's what happens in a healthy local church. The body functions at 100%. Even that second little toe is functioning at 100%. 1 Corinthians 12, 20, 12, 12 through 26. I wish we had time to just dive into that. That's a great passage, and you, you, you know it. Talks about where he's like, not all of you are an eye. Not all of you are a mouth. Not all of you are, but you've all been given a spiritual gift by God to serve one another. And he actually talks about how there are things that are internal that are more protected by the body, but they're still vital. You know, I never think about my spleen. Do you? I don't wake up today with like, oh, glad my spleen's working. Which side's it on? Uh, I, don't, I don't care. But you know what I know? I know it's working. I don't wake up thinking, I wonder if my stomach's going to digest food today. Maybe you've had stomach issues. Maybe you think that way. I don't. I just eat it. Because we expect it to work. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a body. And it's like, function in the body. Serve in the body. You might be a spleen. You might be a big toe. You might be an ear. Function in the body. That the whole body, with all the joints with which it is equipped, will grow into maturity. And here we see that, I think in this text, a healthy body serves itself joyfully. Which may sound weird. But when you think about the church, we serve ourselves, the church, joyfully. Think about it. Again, your body does what God's called it to do, and when your brain tells another part of the body to move, it doesn't revolt. 
Grab that cup. Not doing it. Come on. Move. No, I'm not. No, don't, don't. It just does it. Your, your hand goes and grabs and picks it up, and it does it joyfully. It's just exactly what it's supposed to do. It pick, I don't try to pick it up with, with my elbows. The hand's got a purpose, and I use my hand. He says here in, Galatians, in, in Ephesians 4, it's, it's, it's held together. Each part is working properly. So a healthy church is where we all are together, and we're saying, God, use me here. I don't even know what that looks like, but I'm going to jump in and start loving and serving people. You know what I, I, my heart for this church, we need people in children's ministry. Be involved in kids. Disciple the next generation to love Jesus. But when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor Justin, how can I serve at EGBC? You know what my response is going to be? Who are you loving and serving? Go after that guy. Are you meet with anybody? Are you discipling somebody? Well, just meet with that guy. Sit down and read your Bibles together. Talk about Jesus. Pray for one another. Isn't that what the body should do? It's not like I have a slot on a schedule that I fill, even though that is a need. It's not just that. It's I love and serve one another in the body. It may not even be a function that you're here on Sundays doing something. It might mean that Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays, you're with other people in the church loving and serving one another because the body is functioning healthily as every part works properly. And it grows into maturity. That just makes the body grow. We don't want to be a stagnant church. Oh, we love what's going on. Well, praise God if you love what's happening at EGBC. But don't think for a moment that it's okay where it is right now. I love my kids. I've got four of them. And I tease them. Stop growing. I'm going to put a brick on your head. Stop growing. I love them where I love. But you know what, actually? If we went to the doctor tomorrow... And he said, your son has a disease. He'll never grow. That joke's no longer funny, is it? That joke just got real serious. We don't want to be a church that stops growing. God's doing good things, praise God. This is exciting all that God's doing. We're thrilled at what God's doing. Oh, would we grow more. Oh, Lord, we want to be more like Jesus. We need to be more conformed to your image. Make us a healthier, stronger church that is loving one another and serving one another. We want to grow. And so we see that a healthy body builds itself up in love. I mean, just listen to these words. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Galatians 5.13, but through love serve one another. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love issued from a pure heart. John 13.34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. So we love and we serve one another by grace. Apart from grace, it's entirely impossible. Titus 2, the grace of God appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. The grace that saves you is the grace that transforms you. So we go back to gospel grace and we say, Lord, I need you. 2 Corinthians 12, 14 and 16, we are, we are all sinners who have, been, who have received grace and therefore we're able to give grace. That's, why, that's what makes us radically different. We're not just kind people. We're not just good people. We're actually people who know who we really are. Sinners deserving the wrath of God, saved by the glorious grace of God, and therefore we're freed to sacrificially love and serve each other without any strings attached. So this redeemed body should be the most truly loving place in the world. 
Not a mushy, gushy, sentimental kind of feeling. That's not what we're talking about. But a soul-caring, burden-bearing, messy grace, do hard things, deeply compassionate because we've been loved by Jesus. And so we go after each other hardcore and we say we are willing to love one another even when it hurts and comes at great cost to me. This is the, the such love then as we think on Jesus moves us to sacrificially serve each other. So the church, this redeemed body of Christ followers is two things so far. They are devoted to living for the glory of God and they're devoted to loving and serving one another by grace. And thirdly, this redeemed body is committed to taking the message of the cross to their community. We're committed to taking the message of the cross to our community. The common Christian cliche, again, go into all the world, preach the gospel, means I'd better talk to somebody who doesn't know Jesus about Jesus or I'm a bad Christian. And so we kind of, my arm is twisted. Oh, this is going to be awkward. I got to have a conversation about Jesus again with somebody who doesn't know Jesus because my friend's going to ask and I'm going to be in trouble. That is not what it is at all. Far too often, I think Christians feel like used vacuum salesmen. I knock on your door. Okay, here it goes again. Hope this works. Slam. Okay, that didn't work. See, here's the deal, men and women. A follower of Jesus, a true Christ follower, takes Jesus everywhere because it's who they are. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, oh, well, we're doing evangelism today. Come. We're talking about because you're a follower of Jesus, you take him everywhere because it's who you are. It's just like my family, because it's a part of my life, it's, defined, it's everywhere. It's on my phone, right? You pull it up, you want to see my family? Here they are. Uh, no, I can't because I got to go home to my family tonight. Um, no, I'm not interested. I've got this commitment with my family. It defines so much of who I am. True followers of Jesus, it's not a exercise like, oh, I've got to go evangelize. It's Jesus is who I live for and has changed everything about me and therefore he is what comes out of me. A follower of Jesus takes the compassion. There's three little things here. A follower of Jesus takes gospel compassion everywhere they go. So taking the gospel, the message of the cross includes the compassion of the gospel. We love extravagantly because we've been loved extravagantly by God. 1 John 4.8. Just turn over there quickly. We love extravagantly because we have been loved so. 1 John 4, verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Brothers and sisters, if your theology jades you, if it makes you less compassionate, you have bad theology. Have you ever met Christians who are just the most cynical people in the world? Yeah, we know truth. And you're wrong. Peace out. It's like, what in the world? No way. Like your, 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 your theology does not harden you. If it does, then somehow you have bad theology. You have misplaced theology. You have narrow theology. If you know God, if he has changed you, you should be defined by one consummate thing. That is the most loving person on the face of the planet. You know, what? it, it hurts me. I'll just be honest. When I hear Christians say, well, I can't help that person because, you know, they're just going to use that money and go buy drugs. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say that about you? I'm not going to help that guy because he's just going to go abuse it. What a terrible thing for us to say. You know what? I don't know what they're going to do with that money, but I'm going to love them. I'm not saying give everything you have to people in need, but you better love them. 
because Jesus died for them too. And he transformed your life. He could transform theirs. And you might be the only gospel light they see, so love them. And we live in this culture that's just, oh, well, I've had Christians tell me, well, I just have the gift of being critical. Last time I thought, last time I checked, Jesus died for that sin. That's not a gift. It's a sin. You, that, that's what Jesus died for, right? So we love what we love. We, don't, it, we might be abused in that love. You might say, well, I put my life out of line and got ran over. Didn't Jesus do the same? So we have compassion that oozes out of you because it's what's been done to you by the Savior. So brothers and sisters, we need to love lavishly with the gospel. When I talk about taking the gospel, I'm not just talking about the message. I'm talking about the care of the Savior. The message is going to come in a minute. But if all you do is say, well, I got to give the message at some point to be a faithful follower of Jesus, you're wrong. You take the, the compassion of the Savior with you because it's what defines you. So not only do you take the compassion, you take the gospel, or you take gospel grace with you everywhere you go. Follow along here. Because we've been given grace, we can give grace in a world that's entirely ungracious. Isn't our world ungracious? I mean, it kind of, we're just, we're really unkind, ungracious. I mean, in our world of, you can remove yourself and send texts and post things, and man, we are so ungracious. We are quick to throw things in people's faces. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 talks about suffering the wrong. That's in the context of the church. He's talking about should you sue one another. And he says, why not suffer the wrong? You might, let me actually rephrase that. It's not that you might be mistreated. You will be because we're all a bunch of sinners together. And if you hit the door, the moment somebody's unkind to you, how are you showing the grace of the gospel? As opposed to, you know what? I'm going to love you even though right now I don't want to. I'm going to give grace to you right now, even though I don't want to. And I'm actually going to go back to you in love and talk to you to reconcile with you because that's what the grace of the gospel demands that I do right now. You suffer the wrong. Romans 12, 7, repay no one evil for evil. How's that go in our society? Oh man, don't mess with me. You're going to get it. He says, repay nobody evil for evil. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, he says, repay no one evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. In the context of don't repay evil, do good. Some of you uh, may know this story. I was listening to, I'm listening, I'm listening to a great book right now on uh, America in the Martin Luther King days. And um, it's a great, great uh, sermon by, by King where when, when the police brutality was on the rise in his day, which we know about that, don't we? We're familiar with that right now. And he pled with people. They need to know the love of God. I mean, it was mind-blowing. I'm listening to this book, and I'm like, wow, what a statement. In the midst of riots and violence, and he's just saying, oh, brothers and sisters, they need to know a God who loves them. That's life-transforming, isn't it? And we could apply that to today with all that's happening in our society, but how about just in our church? And it's like, repay no one evil for evil. Seek to love one another. I want you to know the love of God through me. I want you to know that grace has transformed me. So we're going to love one another. So we take the gospel of grace everywhere with us. What would it look like if we actually lived this way in the workplace? When people are in this dog-eat-dog -dog world and we just bring the grace of the gospel. 
What would it look like in our communities when people are, are angry and hostile and we bring the gospel grace to the table and we say, oh, we've been loved by God. We can love even when we're mistreated. I just want to encourage you, though, that giving grace like this is only possible as you rejoice in, meditate, and regularly bathe in the grace of the gospel. So we need to be a church that loves grace. We love mercy. We love compassion. Not just showing it, but believing it, thinking on it, dwelling on it, meditating on it from our theology, from the word, because then it's what comes out of you. And then it's like, wow, in this moment of trial and heartache, grace came out. In this moment of abuse and struggle and being mistreated, grace comes out. Grace-saturated people make much of the Savior simply by how they live. It's not a put on, it's who you are. And so followers of Jesus take the compassion of the gospel and the grace of the gospel everywhere as a way of life. And I think simply and easily put, a follower of Jesus takes the message of the gospel everywhere because it's who they are, right? So it's not just, well, today I've got to do evangelism. No, it's the compassion of Jesus, the grace of Jesus. It defines everything about me. And then guess what? The message of Jesus is what comes out of me. So this isn't a put on for a moment. It's a transformed way of life. That when I am in my family, when I'm in my workplace, when I'm with my neighbors, I don't have to be thinking, oh, okay, I gotta talk about Jesus. It's just, oh man, God is good to me. What do you mean by that? Oh, I'll only tell you about why God is good to me. We're just, we're talking about the grace that changes us and the compassion of Jesus that's been showered upon us. And so then Matthew 28, 19 is no longer a cliche, but it's actually translated this way. As you are going, as you're going in life, as you live your life, you make what? Disciples. And what's a disciple? A follower of Jesus. Isn't that what we started with? So he says, we're followers of Jesus. This is this called out community of Jesus followers. And it finishes with, as you live your life, tell others about the Savior and make more Jesus followers. Because he's transformed you. And so it's just what naturally comes out of you. So I hope this morning that this phrase will stick in our minds. The church is a redeemed body of Christ followers who are devoted to loving or to living for the glory of God, loving and serving one another, and going with the message of the cross. There's a lot more that could be said, but if these things define EGBC, oh, this church will be a beautiful place. And in many ways, these things do define this church. But let's continue striving and say, Lord, we want this and everything that's included in this to be what defines this called out body of believers. And let us live for the glory of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord God, may this place be one that's defined by living for the glory of God loving one another, serving one another, and going with the message of the cross everywhere we go. Oh, would you be glorified in our city, in our community, in our neighborhoods, and in this church as we strive to live according to your word by your grace. And in Christ's name, amen.